Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Hello and welcome back. This is episode three of Looking Above. I'm your host, Karen Boffman, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Today we're going to be looking into John chapters five and six. I hope you've been reading along and really just taking some time to ponder who Jesus is and how he reveals God to us and how that then changes our lives and how we live and relate and how we are able to look above the mundane and earthly stuff that we all deal with and just keep our eyes focused on what we need to focus on, and that's the Father. So let's start in John chapter 5. We see Jesus going to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival, and he walks past this pool, the pool of Bethesda. This pool um, was a meeting place or a resting place for a lot of disabled people. And the reason for this is, is because this pool would bubble every now and again. And they believed the lore of the day was that an angel would come and disturb the water and cause this bubbling. And that the first person in the pool after the bubbles happened would be healed. But what actually was happening Um, we know from history, is that there was an underground spring that fed this pool. And so occasionally the bubbles from this spring would rise up and cause this disturbance of the water. But these people laid there hoping, hoping for a chance healing in the pool. And so as Jesus walks by, he um, encounters this man who has been an invalid for 38 years. And verse six says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? In other words, do you want to receive what I can give you? And he, just as he so beautifully does every time, Jesus goes straight to the heart of this, and he's making sure, like, do you actually want this? And the man responds and says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he was lacking the opportunity for healing, not the will. He did desire to be healed. And just stop and think for a moment. There are a lot of people in our lives who maybe don't desire to be healed. And this could be a physical healing. You know, there are people who are ill. Um, So many times our illness is caused by our own decisions. Not always, but so many times we could be more well if we lived a healthier lifestyle. And oftentimes we aren't willing, we aren't desiring actual healing. If we were, we would make the choices, the lifestyle choices necessary to become well. But there are also people who don't want spiritual healing, right? 
They're okay with where they are in life. They like the lifestyle that they're living. They don't want to give over lordship to God. And so they're unwilling to put their faith in him and to make the necessary adjustments to their life so that they can have spiritual healing. So when Jesus realizes that this man does have the will, he does have the desire, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And always our will must cooperate with God's power. So there was something that this man had to do. God's power was going to heal him, but he still had to take this action of faith and get up and pick up his mat and walk and to obey Obedience is key. At once, it says in verse 9, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. His faith was shown in his obedience. Now, this healing happened on a Sabbath day, which major no-no, of course, in the Jewish tradition. And so the Jewish leaders see that this man is now walking around carrying his mat. The tradition of the elders was that there were 39 categories of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of them was carrying a load from one dwelling to another. So Jesus had told him specifically to do something that was completely conflicting with what the elders of the day would have taught. And so they see this man carrying this and they come to him and confront him about it, and he responds in defense of himself because if you broke these Sabbath laws, the punishment was stoning. And so he knew that he was at great risk here. So he very quickly defends himself and says, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk, which is implying that he recognizes the authority of the one who healed him. He, without knowing who Jesus was, knew that this man had great authority and he was obeying him, even though he knew he was breaking the law in doing so. And they ask him, you know, who was this who told you to do this? But the man had no idea who it was because Jesus had had this brief encounter with him and then slipped away into the crowd. And Jesus does this often. We see this frequently um, where he shunned publicity, where he would sneak away. Many times it was probably to avoid what was about to happen, you know, where the uh, Pharisees and the other religious leaders would come and come after him and attack him verbally. But later on, Jesus encounters this man again. Verse 14 He says to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And then the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So once again, he goes off and tries to explain to these leaders, okay, this wasn't my fault. Don't come after me. It was Jesus who did this. But in this entire encounter, we see Jesus breaking one of the man-made Sabbath laws As he heals this man, he believed implicitly that the Sabbath day was a day to be a blessing and not a burden. Healing was something that should happen on the Sabbath. So verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So this was Jesus' common practice. It says he was doing these things. It was his common practice to do good on the Sabbath. 
And on top of that here, we see that he was inciting others to break the law as well because he had asked this man to pick up his mat and, and walk. And in the Pharisees' belief, in the Jewish leaders' belief, it was worse to incite someone else to break the law than it was for you to even break it yourself. But now, as they come to him and they confront him with this, he defends himself by claiming to be God's son. This was highly offensive to the religious leaders because he was putting himself on the same level as God. And for Jews, this was unthinkable. It was so blasphemous that they felt that he was a danger to society. Verse 18 says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, you know, but he was making himself equal with God. They felt that he was a danger to their entire society and to everything that was going on because he claimed to be God. In this whole next passage here, Jesus just gives them this answer and explains once again. He calls himself the Son or the Son of God over and over and over here in the next about 10 verses. Again, putting himself on the same level as God, saying that he is the son of the almighty God. He is flat out telling them that he is the Messiah. He is clearly claiming to be the Messiah here and telling them that everything that he does is what God, his father, has given him to do. So just going on and on and doing what these leaders were just um, absolutely outraged to see and to hear. But I want to jump down to verse 31 and just look at the proof that he's giving them. So after he's claiming to be the son of God, he's now saying, now let me prove this to you. Let me show you the proof. And I think this is important for us to look at as well, because again, we need to understand that when we see Jesus, we see God. What he says, what he does is revealing to us who God is and what God does. Now, in the tradition of the Jewish people, in order to be prove in order to prove something in a court of law, whether right or wrong, you had to have the testimony of two to three witnesses. And you could not testify for yourself. So verse 31, he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying what I say is not true. He's saying you will not believe me if I testify for myself. So I'm not going to testify for myself. I'm going to show you this proof. And he says there's another, this is his father, who testifies in my favor. Verse 33, he says, you've sent John and he has testified to the truth. So he appeals to the testimony of John the Baptist. And if we go back to John chapter one, verse seven, again, it said that he came to bear witness. This was John's job was to be a witness to point towards Jesus. It talks about John as a lamp in verse 35, one who doesn't a lamp doesn't give light to itself it is lit one that burns out right it consumes itself in order to give life we think of the lamps of this day and a wick and burning down this is what Jesus or this is what John the Baptist did he decreased as Jesus increased 
the light that was shining in him was a light given from God. And his purpose was to burn out in order to shed light on Jesus. So John the Baptist was a testimony. Verse 36, here's another testimony. It says, I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying, these things that I am doing are God working through me. I just did this miraculous healing of this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. You need to look at my works. These are proof, these are testimony to who I am, to the fact that I am the Son of God. And then verse 37, he continues talking about the Father. It says, the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does the word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So he is calling them out right now. He's calling out these leaders and saying, here I am. I am the word of God living in front of you, but you don't get it. You don't hear the father. You don't see what's right in front of you is the testimony of the father living in me tells them you study the scriptures, verse 39, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. The rabbis believed that the study of scripture led to life in the age to come. Eternal life was their goal. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me and have life. We don't want to be like the Pharisees and the rabbis, those who are the religious teachers of this day, because they missed the point completely. And we can miss the point too. We can go to church all our lives and still miss the point. We can have a great knowledge of scripture, just like these religious leaders did, but miss the point. The point is Jesus. He is the answer. He is the one that brings eternal life. If Jesus looked like what they had expected the Messiah to look like, then they would have glorified him. But he didn't meet their expectations, and so they did not have their glory. But he says, verse 41, I don't accept glory from humans, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in their hearts. He's calling them out again. He could see that their hearts were hard, and this is why they couldn't recognize him as the Messiah. He says, I've come in my father's name and you do not accept me. Verse 44, how can you believe? How can you put your faith in me since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? To have put their faith in Jesus, to have stopped then and realized this man is the Messiah. He is who he claims to be, the son of God, would have caused them to lose the esteem of their peers, right? This was a powerful religious party, and they were looking for this conquering Messiah. And so for someone to turn from that and say, yeah, maybe this Jesus guy really is who he says he is, would have caused them to lose the esteem of their peers. And their esteem of their peers was more important to them than the glory that comes only from God. This is what he's saying in verse 44. So I want us to pause and just consider for a moment whose glory, whose esteem is more important to you. Many of us get very caught up in looking around 
looking for the glory of others, looking for the esteem of our peers, looking to be applauded and liked. (laughs) And um, we look for those likes, right? Whether it's just in everyday life or whether it's in our social media, we're looking to draw a fan base, (laughs) to have people who want to be with us, to have people who like us. We're looking for the esteem of others. And Jesus saying, no, 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 that is not the esteem you want. In fact, he says, how can you believe? How can you have faith in me if you're accepting glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from God? If we ladies are to look above, to truly be looking above, we need to stop looking for that approval of man and look for the approval, look for the glory that comes from God and from doing his will and being in love with him, being in step with him, chasing after him and having that kind of approval, that peace in our hearts of knowing that we're right with God. That is key. Let's jump into John chapter six. We have the feeding of the 5,000, a very, very famous story. Whether you've been in the church a long time or a short time, you probably have heard this story Jesus is here and there's this huge crowd that just keeps following wherever he goes because he's doing these miraculous signs and he's healing the sick. And these people are focused on outward signs, okay? This is very common when we are looking around us, when we are focused on earthly things. We're looking for the sign. Jesus, do something and prove to me that you are who you are. So Jesus is trying to kind of get away from this crowd and spend some time with his disciples and rest. And so he climbs up on this hillside, but he notices, it says verse 5, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And as he always does, Jesus's first response is compassion. He looks beyond his own circumstances and his desire for peace and quiet and time with his an intimate time with his disciples. And he has compassion on these people who are following after him. Jesus has compassion on us when we are chasing after him. So don't ever be weary of chasing after him. He will respond with compassion. This is what we see here. But I want to look now at two brothers and their responses to Jesus in the next few moments. Jesus turns first to Philip and he says, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Verse 7, Philip replies, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Philip realizes this is a huge crowd. There are about 5,000 men plus women and children in this crowd. So there is a huge, huge crowd of people following them. And Philip is focused. He is looking around him, right? He's looking around at the current circumstances, at the size of this crowd, knowing we are, you know, men who are coming to follow this rabbi. We're not making a lot of money. We don't have this great livelihood. We're not wealthy men. And you're coming to me, Jesus, and saying, How are we going to feed them? Where are we going to buy bread? And so Philip is focused on the earthly, right? But here comes Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, one of these other men, one of these other disciples. And he says in this band of brothers, right? He says, "Um, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, 
But what good is that with this huge crowd? So he brings something to Jesus. He's like, this is what I've found. He did what he could. He brought this boy to Jesus and he trusts Jesus to do the rest. He's looking above the circumstances and expecting Jesus to step in. Jesus tells them all to sit down. He gives thanks to God. He probably offered a traditional prayer of thanks. And then he distributes it to the people. He starts passing this out. And he did the same with the fish. And it says at the end of verse 11, and they all ate as much as they wanted. Grace abounded. God gave extravagantly. They brought to Jesus this little boy and his five little loaves and his two little sardines. And God turned it into this miraculous feast. He gave abundantly. Everyone ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says, after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Now in Jewish feasts, it was customary to leave something for the servant. So it's not unexpected that after this crowd has all eaten, that they've left a little bit over. And Jesus sends the disciples, the servants in this story, to pick up the scraps that the people have left for them. It was customary for these men to have traveled with a basket. This is something normal. So they each had a basket. There were 12 of them. And it says each basket was filled, right? They filled 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. You imagine what this must have spoken to their hearts in that moment. When God performs this miracle, when Jesus does this abundant act of grace and he feeds all of these people, but there's enough left over for each of them. When God gives, there is abundance and there is no waste. It was all to be used. He had exactly what was left over was what was needed for these disciples. A lesson that we can learn here as we look at this is that little is much in the hands of Christ. So bring him what you have and expect him to multiply it. You can be like Philip, this one disciple who looked around him at the circumstances, or you can be at Andrew who looked at what he had and put it in the hands of his master. That's what we need to do. If we want to look above, we need to take what we have and give it to Jesus. The next story is Jesus walking on the water. And I just want to hit a couple key points here. When um, Jesus comes to them, he walks out on the water to his disciples who are in this squall. And he says, don't be afraid. I am here or it is I. That don't be afraid literally could be said, don't go on being afraid. He's saying, I am here. Now that I am here, there is nothing to worry about. And it says that they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. From that point on, when Jesus entered the boat, the journey was smooth and pleasant, and it seemed short because Jesus was with them. 
So Jesus saw them out on the lake. He came to them in the middle of the storm. He helped them and he brought them to safety. And with his presence, it was smooth sailing. We can apply this to the storms in our life, right? We can look around us and look at the storm and the wind and the waves, or we can look above that to Jesus and recognize that Jesus sees us in this storm. He will come to us, right? Call out to him. He will help us and he will bring us to safety. And when he's with us, the storm seems so much less. It seems so much less daunting. We move on in chapter six, and there's this huge, long um, section where Jesus is again teaching. Really important. I think you should dig into this and just spend some time looking at what he's saying. But I want to just focus on the fact this whole encounter is very similar to the encounter with the woman at the well who was um, talking with Jesus about living water, and now he is going to be talking about being the bread, the bread of life. And so the people are coming to him. And of course, they're looking for another miracle. He just fed them miraculously. And so they chase him again across the lake. They come to him because they're looking for, verse 27 says, perishable things like food. Jesus calls them out and says, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. This is how we should be spending our lives. We should live for the eternal, not the temporal. And then Jesus goes in. They, of course, don't get it again. Well, we want to perform God's works. What should we do? Jesus tells them the only work God wants from you, believe in the one he has sent. So the requirement for those who would receive the life-giving food was faith. It was a relationship with God. That is foundational, he tells them. And so they ask for another miracle because this is what we do as humans. We focus on the things that we see. They're saying the feeding of the 5,000 was this temporary fix. But Moses, Moses used to feed us in the desert. We, you know, our ancestors were fed over and over. What can you do? They're saying, can you one up Moses? Can you up the ante, Jesus, and show us who you really are? And Jesus, as he does, gets kind of under the meaning of their words. And he says, my father did that. That wasn't Moses. But now my father is offering you true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread, the bread that sustains us at our inmost, that isn't perishable, that gives us this lasting, everlasting life, eternal life. And just like the woman at the well, they still don't get it. They hear his words and they're still thinking in this materialistic, human, temporal manner. And they say, sir, give us that bread every day. Just like that woman said, oh, where is this water? Give it to me and I'll drink of it. Then I won't be thirsty. And so we see Jesus respond and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. This passage here from verse 35 to 40 As you break this down and just look through these verses, we see this process. We see people who, this should be us, who see Jesus, first of all, then they come to Jesus, then they believe in Jesus or submit and surrender their lives, and then they receive life. 
Verse 40, for it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. So God moves in our hearts. He awakens a desire for him, but we still have the choice. We have the opportunity to refuse the offer of God or to come after the son, to feast on the son, to believe in him. And then it says we will have eternal life. I'm jumping down to verse 47. Again, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He is making it so abundantly clear to them. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer that the world may live is my flesh. Jesus is telling them, if you put your belief, if you put your faith in me, you will have life. And he contrasts what he is offering with the manna right? This bread in the wilderness and those people all died. He's saying, you're so focused on what Moses did and hear what I am offering to you. What I offer to you is everlasting life, is a life that will go on forever. And we see in this passage that he is the giver and he is the gift. He is the one that's offering life, but he is also the one who offers himself, who dies, who is that bread. And we kind of see this whole communion-esque discussion here, this verbiage that sounds just like communion, right? That he is the bread. Jesus says he offers it. I will offer the end of verse 51. This is voluntary. He gives his life so that the world may live. And he says, this bread is my flesh. So in here again, we see the full humanity of Jesus that he is going to die. Now, this whole way of of speaking here, they would have understood this. They should have understood this. It says that they don't really because they start arguing about it. But in ancient animal sacrifice, even in the pagan cultures, um, but also we see this in the, you know, in the Jewish tradition, part of the flesh was given to the priest. Part of it was burned up as a sacrifice to God or to a God. And then part of it was given to the worshiper to feast upon. And they believed that when this flesh was offered to a God or to God, that the God entered the flesh and the worshiper then ate the flesh and the God. So we see that idea of communion, you know, when we hear about eating the flesh, um, They believed that as they ate the flesh of whatever their sacrifice was, the animal sacrifice system in this time, that they were nourishing themselves with the life and strength of the God. And so Jesus is using this language that was very relatable, that was very understandable to them. He's telling them they need to feast on him. And he goes on here then to talk about drinking his blood in verse 53. Now look out because this would have gotten them up in arms. The law of Moses forbade drinking any blood or eating any flesh with blood in it. They believed that the blood was for God and they drained out all the blood before they ate any meat. 
So Jesus is saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life with you. So he is like taking this and turning what they believed on its head. They're probably now in utter shock. But he says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. True sustenance and refreshment for spiritual life are found in the one who died so that we may live. And he tells them, verse 56, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. This is that word abide or dwell that we see Jesus use uh, frequently, especially I think in the book of John. But this is how we eat and drink him. It is to remain in him, to be in him, to live our lives in him and him in us, to focus on him, to dwell on him, to ponder who he is. What we're doing right now as we are going through this book of John and we're diving in here and we are feasting on the word, that is exactly what he's telling us to do. His flesh, his blood, as we think about his humanity, as we dwell on him, we are gaining sustenance. We are having that life multiply and grow within us. We need to take Jesus's life into the core of our hearts. We need to study this and believe it and make it a part of us. And then this chapter ends with disciples or those who are following him to this point, leaving him. Verse 60 says, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples, many turned away and deserted him. They were looking around. They were focused on what Jesus said. And again, looking at it from an earthly point of view. And they said, this is hard teaching. I don't get it. I don't like it. And they walked away. But Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you also going to leave? Jesus turns to you and to me. says, are you also going to leave? Are you going to continue to allow your eyes and your hearts to be focused on things of earth, to look around and see these things and think, you know what, the way I'm living in this world, it's, it's not too bad. And yeah, the world throws some crappy stuff at me, but it, it's okay. And I can do this on my own. Are we going to continue to live on our own strength or are we going to look above that? Are we going to receive these teachings of Jesus, which may be offensive to our flesh? He may call us to do things that we don't want to do or that this world tells us are really countercultural. And are we going to feast on him? Are we going to feast on his word and on who he is? Take him into our hearts, to our inmost being. Look above all of this. Listen to what Jesus says. See the Father in him. Hear the Father's commands through the Son. Feast on him and then have eternal life. Keep looking above. Keep looking to Jesus, ladies. Keep listening to these words, digging in here, feasting on his flesh, drinking of his blood, encountering him in the book of John so that we can look above, so we can rise above, and so we can live in a way that is above what this world calls us to do. 
God loves you abundantly and he has so much more for you. Continue to chase after him and look above. <laughs>